You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 52. Just the other day, I stumbled across a concept that got me super excited. Within minutes of reading a piece in the news, I'd tracked down some contact details and invited him on the show. Joe Quirk is part of the Seasteading Institute, and the title of his very recent book just about sums up their whole reason for being and the concepts that I got so excited about. Seasteading, how floating nations will restore the environment, enrich the poor, cure the sick, and liberate humanity from politicians. What a concept, and what a guy. You're about to hear a conversation that might just be a window into the future of humanity. It is becoming plain for most of us to see that the old way school of thinking and governing countries around the world is taking us down a very dark alley. Half the world is starving to death, while the other half is obese. We're killing the environment while at the same time electing politicians who are shameless lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry. Austerity is sweeping the Western world. We're cutting services to the poor, pushing more and more below the poverty line and punishing people for being unemployed. At a time where unemployment figures are on the increase and the richest 1% are taking a greater and greater share of the world's wealth. It's broken and watching our leaders pretend to try and fix it has driven many of us to premature baldness. Joe Quirk and his fellow seasteaders are proposing not a solution to these problems, but an alternative. Think of seasteading as the Uber, and our current style of government as the crumbling, crusty old taxi industry. Except this isn't just about transport, it's about civilization, the future of humanity. So what is seasteading? What's it all mean? How does it work? And when's it going to happen? You're about to find out. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joe Quirk. Joe Quirk, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. I'm honored to be here, David. I'm a fan already. Oh, I know. You just told me before we hit record that you've actually listened to some of my episodes. I really appreciate that, Joe. It's good to have someone who's a fan on the show, but this is a two-way fan relationship because as you already know, your idea of seasteading is one of those things that I stumbled across not that long ago, about a week and a half ago, and I fell in love immediately. I saw it on a news article and I, it blew the top of my head off. And I said, I want to be a part of that. I've got to have this guy on the show. And I sent you an email immediately. And here you are. Joe, share with our listeners what this whole seasteading thing is about. So seasteading is building politically independent cities that float on the ocean. And when you realize half the Earth's surface is unclaimed by any country, seasteads would be startup countries on like a blue frontier. And I happen to spend most of my time in Silicon Valley 
And if you think the source of solutions is startups and the source of a lot of problems is monopolies, it just sort of hits you that like, wow, we could start up new societies, demonstrate what works, what doesn't work. And as long as people can choose among them voluntarily, the best solutions would emerge. And I, I would love to hear why you found this so compelling. And then I'll, I'll tell you my story about how I blew the top of my head off too. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I found so compelling is the imagery that you have on your website. The, the image that came with the news article that got me started with you, it's, I think, an artist's impression of what it might look like. And it just captures the imagination. Whoever you got to do that was the right person. And you, and even just that first sentence that you, you said there, I've, I've heard you say that before on a video that I've watched, they're floating cities and they're, they're governmentally independent. They're brand new. What's the most important part of that? Is it the new age government or the fact that they're floating? What really, what really draws you to it? Well, seasteading solves two problems at once, and they're two of the biggest problems in the world. And it's uh, sea level change and the lack of startup innovation and governance. And I'll tell you about how I was converted to the power of this view. I mean, first of all, coastal countries all over the world are sinking below sea level. Pacific Island nations are in danger of being completely covered. Mm. You mentioned the artist's rendition on our website. That is actually not done by an artist. That's done by uh, Delta Sync in Holland, who are an aquatic engineering firm who built the floating pavilion in Holland. And they have a whole idea, like they kind of independently thought of floating cities and floating independent countries. Because as you know, uh, you know, the Dutch are in danger of sinking completely below the sea and they're mm. starting to transition into floating cities. What happened to me was I was on a cruise ship and I was walking around astounded at how this could be the highest standard of living I'd ever had. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were ice sculptures. There was like infinite free food. I had like a personal butler taking care of me all day. So it was kind of like I was a middle-class American living like a rich person. Yeah. And I noticed that most of the people who worked on the ship were like Polynesian or from Thailand. And they were poor developing world people who gave off the sense that it was exciting for them too. Like yeah. they got to live like a middle-class waiter yeah. for, you know, six months out of the year. And I was thinking like, why is it cheaper for me to be on this floating thing than it was for me to be in my coastal hotel the night before I got on it? Yeah. And instead of enjoying myself, I was literally walking <laughs> around making like back of the napkin calculations. I was like, okay, so there's this many people on the ship. They're all paying this much. There's all this stonework and, and beautiful stuff all over the ship. Like it's a floating mansion. How could this work? There must be- It a, doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Yeah. And then I go back to San Francisco and there's crime, there's homelessness, there's dirt, there's, there's all sorts of problems. And then about six weeks later, I was at my 10th Burning Man. What's a, what's when a Burning you, Man? Oh, Burning Man is a- a yearly festival that happens in the desert of California. Right. And some guy went out into the middle of nowhere, you know, 20, 25 years ago and built a big man. Yeah. And then burned it. And this was such a like religiously powerful symbol. The next year, 100 people showed up and did it again. The next year, 500 people showed up and did it again. And a community has formed around this ritual until at this point, it's getting up to close to 70,000 people go every year. You're right. You've been 10 times in a row. 
I've been 14 times. Wow. And the reason one of there are many reasons to go. And one of the things that's fascinating about it is that it appears to be a startup society, even though it only exists for a week. And rules have evolved over time that are not predictable from the original parameters, right? So it started as a gift economy. It started as a as a trade economy, and it slowly evolved into a gift economy. And there's all sorts of interlocking rules and ways of getting along that no one planned. They just sort of emerged over time from the community itself. It's also interesting that you know the people that I knew who went there 10 years ago are not the same people who go now, and yet it seems to have maintained a certain type of culture. So invariably, you start thinking, anyone who goes to Burning Man 10 times starts thinking, what if you could have more of these? Mm, what if you could live like this all the time? What if you could live like this all the time? And it's in the middle of a flat, featureless desert with no life. It's like an extinct lake bed. It's alkaline sand. So there's literally no bugs. There's no plants. There's no nothing. There's nothing but a chance to start over temporarily. Yeah, yeah right. I get it. So what if life could be like this all the time? What yeah. if you could have hundreds of these all over the world? What interesting things would emerge? You can't get around thinking like that. Mm. So I was at a Burning Man right after I'd been on a cruise ship. And a friend where, where, of mine, where the numbers didn't add up. Yeah. And a friend of mine just sort of mentioned seasteading. And I said, seascaping? What, what is that? Like some kind of like, my wife does a, is an esthetician. Is it like hair removal or something? <laughs> and he, he, I'm going to tell this story and you're going to say I'm lying because it seems like it's not true. But he literally <laughs> gestured to his right. Yeah. Well, here's Patry Friedman, the head of the Seasteading Institute. Right. And I turned to my left and there was a gymnast in a thong balanced on a seesaw in the shape of a boat, <laughs> literally balancing like a guru on this thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, hi, strange fellow. Uh, <laughs> you fit right in with Burning Man. And he started explaining that seasteading is building cities on the sea. And because I'd just been on a cruise ship, it seemed completely real, um, reasonable to me that, yeah, I can see humanity is going to go there, but mm. it seems strange to me that someone would start a nonprofit to make it happen sooner. I don't mm. get it. And then uh, I kind of went home and noticed that the Seasteading logo was based on the Burning Man logo. Right. And I said, why would cities on the ocean be based on a city in the desert? And that caused me to read Patry Friedman's blog, where he elucidated this concept. I'm an author. I write books. I just written a book about evolution. I understand that the source of progress is variation and selection. And when Patry Friedman explained that if you were on a fluid frontier that would fundamentally change kind of the source code for how people get along, if floating cities were modular and they were detachable and you could move them about and reattach in other places, you'd have variation by societies and selection by uh, residents. And that just hit me like a shovel in the face. I was like, that would be variation and selection, the, the secret recipe that drives progress in technologies and life itself. And we would unleash that in governance itself. So then I started soliciting the Seasteading Institute. And I said, this can't be an obscure idea among Silicon Valley bloggers, the deepest, most fundamental problem we need to solve from which all other problems flow 
is the problem of 193 governments in charge of 7 billion people. Yeah. And we need demonstrations. We need like the iPhones of the sea where people can try their different apps, apply their different apps. And as long as people can choose among them, we will set off evolution and governance itself. And I've, I've just become completely addicted to that idea. And I've committed myself to explaining it. And my book about it just came out like two days ago. So we'll talk about your book soon. I am going to be one of the first people who reads your book, Joe. This concept, politically independent cities that float on the ocean. And as I said, the, the image was the thing that got, that captured my attention. And uh, if you want to see that image, I'll, I'll put it up on, I'll put a link to it on my podcast page. But of course, you could just go to seasetting.org. But you talk about this idea and it seems like a complete idea in, in that Silicon Valley tradition where there's this old problem. And when the solution is presented to you, you think, oh, yeah, wow, it has been staring at us in the face for generations. And I didn't see it, but now someone has seen it and I'm starting to explore it in my mind. And the more questions I have for it, of it, the answers come back to me and they're fantastic answers. It is a complete idea. And as I say, it was the image that grabbed me and then I explored it further. And the more I learned about it, the more questions it seemed to answer. In a way, the theme of what you're talking about is don't try and fix the old stuff, create new stuff. And Mm -hmm. we're talking about governments there and people, I'm a bit of a political tragic, Joe. I I admit that to my listeners quite often. I love keeping my eye on politics here in Australia. It's it's ugly. It's very partisan. I don't know whether it's more or less partisan than, than where you live, but it's close. Probably just doesn't get as much international attention, but it's ugly. And for some reason, I watch it and enjoy watching it in a sick kind of way that makes me feel ill in the stomach. And I can't see a solution to it. The vested interests, the old school thinking. And as you say, in in some of the stuff that I've read and, and seen of you, it is an old government system trying to survive in the modern age. You're not trying to fix that. You're going to create a new one. So that's point number one. That's really interesting to me, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But the other point, and this is probably even more, if it could be controversial or groundbreaking, the idea that you're not advocating that we act on climate change. You're saying this is a solution to the problems that climate change will bring us. That's a little bit controversial in itself, isn't it? It's almost like there's two schools of thought, and people who are advocating for action on climate change in some ways are horrified by people who are starting to think of a world beyond climate change when that's what you're doing. I mean, the Pacific Island nations need solutions immediately. Mm. A solution as let's just empower all the governments of the world to control businesses around the world and they will control the temperature of the planet, which will then reverse the rise of sea levels. I just don't feel like that's a realistic near-term solution, and it certainly doesn't appeal to someone in Tahiti or Kiribati. Who has the water lapping you, at their feet today. Yeah, and their, their uh, water tables are turning to salt water. Like, they are coping with this. It's right in their faces. Yeah. So if you can provide the means for these places to organically adapt as it comes, the same way Holland is organically adapting to rising sea levels... You can imagine some of these island nations steadily transitioning into being floating nations. And then we'll have an interesting legal question, which is, are they still nations? Mm. 
What's the answer uh, to that question? You say that you think the U- the UN is inclined to recognise floating nations. What does that mean? And and what leads you to be inclined to think that? That the UN has an amazing record of recognising uh, the sovereignty of people. There were a very small number uh, of nations as colonialism was wearing down. And many more have, you know, in sort of like indigenous populations have, you know, appealed to the world for recognition. United Nations success at negotiating peace between nations has been mixed. Their tendency to recognize the self-governance of different small groups of people has been one of the uh, great unsung accomplishments of the institution, in my opinion, if you care about these things. Yeah. And now we're getting close to 200 nations around the world. So you can imagine Kiribati, which is right next to French Polynesia, where we're building these things, they're scheduled uh, to sink below sea level like before the end of this century, if things keep going as planned. Mm -hmm. So do they lose all that sovereignty? Do they lose that gigantic special economic zone when their islands will just be slightly below sea level and it won't be that hard to anchor to them and have floating sustainable societies. We already have maritime attorneys who are eager to argue this case on the United Nations floor. And if, say, Kiribati is recognized as a floating nation, suppose you set up another one nearby. Yeah. Then you'll have a precedent for floating nations. Then you confront the fact that the oceans are covered in all sorts of high mountains that come up very close to the surface. Mm -hmm that you can simply attach to and float your little floating nation. What happens when babies are born there? Will they be stateless? Uh, Um, There's institutions to protect against statelessness. I think you have a humanitarian appeal to these sort of floating nations being recognized as the world sort of transitions to them. Well, you you talk about the extension of those nations that are lost to to the rising sea levels, essentially, because we're anchoring to their old land and shouldn't they be able to keep that sovereignty? Yeah, that that makes complete sense. But it's a step further to suggest that the UN would recognize brand new nations that are just started out of nothing in, in the middle of the wide blue ocean. Yes, if it's if imagine if you just set one up like mm. right next to Kiribati after it sinks. Yeah. And if you think about the legal, we're halfway there legally with regard to uh, cruise ships and cargo ships. So your standard cruise ship that I you know talked about was so wonderfully governed when I was there, it's likely to fly the flag of say Liberia which has no capacity to enforce any laws right. on the three and a half thousand ships that fly its flag. Right. So the shipping industry is already commandeering this legal space where I incorporate in this country over here, I hire from this country over there, I fly the flag of this country way over here, but I'm sort of de facto in practice self-governing. So what if cruise ships never docked? Mm. They're already getting away with a considerable amount of autonomy in practice as long as they fly the flag of somebody. So they're already a baby step from just saying, what if we never come ashore and we float out here permanently and we're twice as big and we're not a harm to anyone and we're providing a service to the world? Most people love cruise ships. Nations aren't hostile to them. I feel like both the technological and legal innovations are right on the edge of seasteading. 
You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. I liked your description before when you talked about your concept being like the iPhone of of the ocean or the iPhone of civilization, really, where people can throw out their apps and they'll only survive or be profitable if people buy them. So if they're good, if they have an appeal. And that's what you're imagining governance to be like on these seastead communities, because you make it very clear that that you have no ideological position on any one type of government or another. But if your communities suggest that they're going to act in in a certain way, they will rise and fall in popularity and, and survival on how popular their type of governance is. And if people don't like it, they'll leave and it will fall apart. And if people love it, they will stay and more will want to come. And that would deem that type of governance a success. What do you think it would really be like? How's it going to start in the very least? You know, we're old school thinkers. Everyone who's on the first seastead will have come from an old society like the one that we live in. How do you imagine they'll begin the process of governing? I believe this is such a deep solution that it's in principle unpredictable, the same way the people who, say, founded Australia or the United States couldn't have described to the monarchists what these societies are going to be like or what Manhattan Island is going to look like. But nevertheless, I would love to speculate for you here on your show. Please. I think it's going to go like this. We're going to, before 2020, we're going to have modest little experiments in French Polynesia. We're going to make them beautiful. We're going to make them, we're going to fill them with uh, Polynesian faces and Polynesian students. We're going to make it a sort of blue tech hub. Blue tech, love it. Yeah. Uh, Wave generation technologies, schools. There's, I I don't want to get into my book, but there's multiple ocean technologies you can feature on these things. If we set a good example and our business model works, then we'll start to attach more platforms. By 2025, these could expand. If we please French Polynesia, they may allow us to negotiate for a little bit more autonomy further out to sea. Other island nations and coastal nations may say, hey, this is an interesting thing. Mm. We're interested in soliciting you for our island nations. So in the vision of Delta Sync, the Dutch company, it starts as the coastal expansion of existing states. Right. And the innovation is started for these a market of voluntary societies at sea that people can choose and unchoose just like they do cruise ships. So you'll have this steady advancement in legal and engineering technology moving out to the high seas until you're literally on the 45% of the Earth's surface that is unclaimed by existing nation states. And if our this system of choice and proliferation of ideas, where seasteads go in and out of business according to people's choices, I think this will unleash unimaginably uh, superior societies. I'm with you. I I can imagine it going well. And I'm sorry, I know you were going to continue there, but I just want to recap a little bit there that it makes so much sense that that it would begin as the coastal expansion of existing states. That makes sense to me. And then you've got an eye on that 45% of the Earth's surface that is currently not claimed by anyone. And the tropical oceans, you know, near the equator, hurricanes don't... Mm cross the equator, it's calm, it's warm, 
you can start very small and inexpensively. And the more minds you attract to this problem, the quicker the costs will go down. So you don't have to be an oil company in order to float at sea. There are people working on materials and composites, and there's all sorts of people getting interested in this. And if you can attach to a mountain that's, say, you know, 50 meters below the surface, mm-hmm. it turns out the, the oceans are full of these things. Yeah. So we could easily colonize this part of society, and then we set a better example as powerful as, say, Hong Kong which is an example I use of a tiny little startup government that created so much wealth and success, it changed the policies of all of China and caused, you know, at least a half billion people to exit poverty because of the example set by Hong Kong. Yeah. So we want to create thousands of floating Hong Kongs. Because of Hong Kong, it started a special economic zone movement, which are little sort of legal islands on land. They've 4,000 of them have proliferated across the world in the last 50 years. And uh, the legal innovator involved with our floating island project, uh, Tom W. Bell, has taken the next step beyond the sea zone and the next step beyond the uh, special economic zone and designed what he calls the sea zone, which takes the best practices of all these 4,000 experiments and applies them for floating islands. And the great thing about this is that you can go to any coastal country in the world, any island nation in the world, and say, we don't even need your land. We'll bring our own land. Grant us a little bit more regulatory freedom. We absorb all the risk. If it fails, we detach. We sell off the seasteads to some competing seastead. There's no risk to the host country. But if we succeed, we bring prosperity to your local people. We set an example that changes the world. Mm. And we just want to proliferate Hong Kongs all over the world. We set an example that changes the world. That's the, the part about that I like. Look, it's just an amazing concept. And, and as I've heard you talk about or I've read, you've said somewhere that at the moment in this old style 20th century governments, you, you know, people can't leave a failing government. People are forced to stay. And we know ad nauseum, we hear every day on the news about the crisis of refugees around the world and how badly we're dealing with that, how these destitute war-torn countries have millions upon millions of people who are starving to death and don't know where to go and have nowhere to go and are rejected by rich countries like yours and mine, countries who could be suggested are the cause of a lot of the grief in the first place, all of these horrible things. Yet in your world, in a future world of seasteads, people can simply leave a failing government. And it leads to the question of who would begin, who would start a a seastead? Would it just be rich people who can afford to? And you actually argue, no, it wouldn't be rich people because why would they go anywhere? The current system and economies are rigged for them. It would in fact be that bottom 20% who are most likely to start off in seasteads, people for whom the current system is not geared towards them winning, people who are losers in the current system. Yeah, just like our grandparents and great grandparents who mm. founded uh, your country and mine. Yeah, it was, it was like right. the dispossessed, the people that are desperate for yeah. any other option. Yeah, and the refugee crisis is so tragic. You know, to start with a very rich guy, there's an Egyptian uh, billionaire. I have trouble pronouncing his last name. It's like Nazwib, who offered to buy islands from Greece to give these people a place to go. Oh, wow. uh, and Greece said no. What? He offered to buy islands from Italy. Italy said no. These government monopolies are not giving away islands. But if we create new islands, and instead of poor people working on cruise ships for six months out of the year, 
What if they permanently take jobs in new nations conceived in the 21st century instead of previous centuries? We could really unleash modern innovation. The, you know, the people who founded my nation did not predict, you know, global instantaneous telepathy like Twitter. Yeah. There are so many great ideas proliferating out there for how we can get along and how we can govern ourselves. And there's no place for these things to be tried. That's right, because of the old and they're much better the, than the ideas the old thinking governments that we've been talking about. Hey, we'll get to that in a minute. That that whole concept, if you build it, they will come. I'll, I'll let you talk about that in a second. But when you were talking, then you just reminded me of of the relationship that has we've seen so many times pop up over the last decade or so. That Uber taxi relationship. You know, the old taxi industries who, for so long in so many cities across the Western world, have had monopolies or duopolies. They saw Uber coming. And I don't know about where you live, but where I live and so many other cities in Australia, the taxi industry saw Uber coming. And instead of reacting and tidying up their act, they spent hundreds and millions of dollars in lobbying against Uber, in bad-mouthing Uber in the press, in lobbying right-wing old-thinking politicians instead of tidying up their act. And you see, uh, you know, Blockbuster went out of business when um, iTunes came along. And it's almost as though this concept of new, brand new societies seasteading the Uber of civilization and those old governments like yours and mine that are locked in in the old way of thinking and the, the vested interests are the taxi industry who will probably refuse to learn from it and react appropriately or positively, but instead will fight it all the way to the end. Yes. And, you know, Texas in the United States is is uh, one of the most uh, market loving uh, states. But Austin voted to uh, not allow Uber. And if you if you come to understand economics, in my opinion, you come to understand that monopolies are the problem. Mm -hmm. If you have sort of decentralized competition for the choices of consumers, when you think of markets as things that are there to serve consumers, then you sort of engage the global ecology of human intelligence to rapidly create all these network effects and solve problems faster than you can think of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the way markets work. That's the way our conversation is happening right now. But as soon as you put a small group of people with a monopoly, a legal monopolistic control over some industry, prices go up, the service gets worse, and people are less and less served and there's not much we can do about it. What drives improvement in a market is choice. And the most fundamental industry that we most need choice and improvement on is governance itself. So that idea of choice in the seasteading world, would I literally have my family module that I can float around and I could maneuver somehow and we would choose the, the civilization that, that advertises a governance that we like the most? And we would go and try that. And if we don't like it, we would undock and go somewhere else. Is that, is that what you're imagining? That's the, the vision. I would love to get there. Believe it or not, I already know a guy who's, <laughs> I did a podcast with him. His name is Michael Elliott. He's building, you know, single family uh, seasteads that he think will remain stable in the wave. He's working on this in the Bay Area. Right. I think it's more likely these will start as like neighborhood sized, block sized, it depends on the depth of the water, the height of the waves. The way it works is you can send a foundation down into the land and secure your building. You can also send a foundation down into the water. 
if it's deep enough and heavy enough, you can create an incredible amount of stability on the ocean. We can already do this now. If, if your uh, listeners are curious, they can look up the flip ship, which they say remains as stable as a fence post in the waves. The problem with these technologies, they're very expensive and uh, mostly fossil fuel companies could afford them. Mm. And what seasteaders are interested in doing is scaling up this technology, making it profitable on a small scale in shallower waters, and then building up to allowing people to go to the high seas so they stop being you know, city block size seasteads and do eventually become that family size seastead where then you will truly have a choice and you can float around and choose your neighbors. Wow. So you say that uh, you know, if, once you've built this idea and, you, and you're even just laying the idea out in front of people, innovators flock to it, build it and they will come. What kind of innovative ideas have blown you away since you've been floating this idea? <laughs> Pardon the pun. I've been you know, involved with this for five or six years and right up until today, I've continued to be astounded by the solutions people bring to this movement. Mm. So I've been convinced from the beginning and why I got involved with it as a populist that the, the way seasteading is going to happen is it's in all the brains out there that haven't heard about it yet. So every conceivable mm. expert you would need to found a new society, someone from that field gets hooked by seasteading and solicits us saying, this is how we could do this. So I spoke about Michael Elliott a little while ago. Mm. I'll just, since I brought him up, I'll bring, I'll talk about him as an example. So he's, he researched the concrete that the Romans made that mixed with volcano ash, and some of which has lasted underwater for, you know, a thousand years. And he's been experimenting with geopolymer concrete, which uh, is designed to last centuries at sea to be carbon negative because it uses fly ash left over from burning coal. And I, I recommend you guys check out that podcast. So some of the criticisms you have of seasteading is like, well, you have to build these platforms. It's going to be bad for the environment. Well, if you get to completely rethink how things are going to float on the ocean, you have to think about the confluence of all these technologies, 3D printing, hmm. materials science that could actually be economically restorative. Combine that with, I've spoke about Delta Sync before, and they actually have a plan in French Polynesia to position their platforms in such a way that it would lower the temperature of the local water just enough to spark the restoration of the corals that have been bleached down there. So imagine making the environment better yeah, just by the, the presence of your floating city. Yeah, These ideas just go on and on and on. And so many of the problems that we get frustrated about on land are based on the problem of monopoly governance that doesn't allow the network effects of all these solutions that can work together. So this is a chance to completely rethink society from the water up. You talk about some of your opponents pointing out physical flaws, flaws in science. What about conceptual flaws or philosophical flaws? What do your opponents say there? When I first got involved in this and started explaining it to people, I said, I'm still waiting for someone to explain to me what's wrong with this idea. Yeah. And I don't feel like we have opponents. I feel like we have people who don't understand it. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book and did videos, because most of the, the challenges come from the counterintuitive way that seasteading makes you think. Mm. 
Yeah. If you're floating on the ocean, it's a completely different dynamic to living on land in a monopolistic government founded in a previous century. You know, when I think about who would be useful in these kind of places, I can think about, you know, people who can create the internet, people who can, you know, who are scientists and they can turn salt water into drinking water, people who can farm. I would be completely useless. I'm a leadership consultant. I don't think people would want me on their seastead. I, I wouldn't be of any practical use at all. Disagree. <laughs> um, <laughs> make me feel better then. Go. So maybe three and a half thousand people have signed up for our surveys, specifying in detail what they want from their free floating island. Yeah. And they're of all different income brackets and skill levels. And they all, many of them are entrepreneurs. Many of them want to bring their unique aquatic business, whether it's in wave energy or algae or seaweed to our uh, floating city. And many of them express a willingness to hire and eager to work with other kinds of people. I've fantasized about parking my podcast <laughs> that I'd like to scale up. Yeah. And you could go do your podcast there. I mean, I think you're a, a marvelous podcaster. And I'm sure <laughs> that the would average be my value, person, hey? Yeah. Or, I mean, you discover your value by the options that are offered to you. And I'm sure there are people in Thailand who said, I'm illiterate. I have no skills. What could I possibly do? And then they, they, one of their cousins went and took a job on a cruise ship. And then they go and work on a cruise ship and they start learning skills just like, you know, I did as a teenager and they start discovering what they're good at. You can't predict the opportunities that will emerge from a completely new world. I've always wrestled with this concept of, of the way technology is making us increasingly efficient at work and the things that we produce, yet we're working harder and longer hours. And, and, we, and you know, you could, the, the stats are at our fingertips. We know that the, you know, in your country and in my country and every other developed country, the, the sh wages share of GDP is always falling. And the share of profit to GDP is always rising, i.e. you and I are getting less of it. Big corporations are getting more of it. So at some point, there needs to be a circuit breaker because we're moving towards a time where we can live in a post-work world where there are so many machines doing the things that we need done that we, you and I could actually not work. But of course, that will never happen in our current paradigms because corporations will always want to be skimming the profit off the top. They're not going to want the value to be you, your lifestyle, and my lifestyle. It's almost as, this, as if these seasteads could be the circuit breaker for so many problems that we have in society. Right. And if you think of you know, uh, corporations as you're using the term as, as state-created fictions mm. with unique uh, legal rights you know, as people in the United States... You could start over with a completely different kind of business if a seastead was recognized. And I remain nevertheless uh, optimistic because um, if you measure wealth by money and the wages paid, it doesn't look too good and it looks pretty unequal. Mm. But if you measure it by value in general, life has certainly gotten better for me over the half century I've been alive. One of the examples I think of is they took that survey where they go around and they ask people, would you give up the internet for a million dollars? And virtually everybody says no. Yeah, yeah. And what they're basically admit admitting is that the internet alone gives them more than a million dollars worth of value. Yeah. And a millionaire in 1970 probably would have paid 
a million to use the internet if he could imagine what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good so point. the fact that you and I can find each other and have this enlivening conversation, what would I have paid for that in like 1980? I probably wouldn't have known how great it was and I probably wouldn't have paid for it. So it's an example of the unimaginable things that can be brought to us if there's more decentralized innovation among lots of people. And I think seasteading solves the that problem at its fundamental, which is the governance itself. I can just kind of imagine it now. You know, we get our family modular and uh, we start looking at the catalog of different communities we could join. And we all would have our bias as to what sort of community we want to join. And one of my biases would be a post-economy society. I'd want to join one that has no financial economy. And that'd be where I start, where you might start somewhere else looking for your ideal place or, uh, you know, it's just a, a fascinating concept. Hey, I've heard you say that you think that our children will be living in floating cities and that they'll look back on the 20th century when we lived in primitive governments founded in previous centuries and shake their head. Do you really think it will happen that quickly? I think it could scale up incredibly quickly. If these things are actually floating in a decade, in two decades, if they're actually in international waters and you have airports out there and people routinely fly to them, you know, Japan had a floating airport in the year 2000. I think, you know, the same way we shake our heads at, uh, you know, the early part of the 20th century or at previous centuries, like how could they have believed that? How could they believe, I think in the 21st century, very soon, our children will be saying, I don't understand how they thought they could solve complex social problems by pressing little levers in a private booth every couple of years between two choices. Why would they think one guy could solve all these problems? And why did they only have two choices? You're talking about um, voting there, aren't you? The levers. We, yes. we, we don't have that. We have a pen and paper. We're, we're still back there, but get you. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, and, and, we, and, the, and the crazy thing, the thing that will be funny in a hundred years is that we call that democracy. We can choose between this guy or this guy, and they're pretty much the same. They wear different color ties, but that's democracy. And we're willing to go to war for that concept, that ideology. It's crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff. And even having to go to war and considering yourself, you know, owned by this giant thing, it's a very primitive idea that emerged from, you know, previous ages of conquerors and people, you know, controlling land was the fundamental way you controlled people. And we've kind of inherited these institutions, but they, they're they not going to work as well on the ocean where people can float around, attach and detach. So what's going to be the, what's going to make people leap and where will the critical mass be? Will it be when climate change physically changes our environment so much we have to, we've got to do something about it? Or will there be early adopters and word spreads that, hey, this is actually a really cool way to circumnavigate the ridiculous parts of our old school governments and people will just start taking that leap of faith because it's so attractive, not because they absolutely have to. I'll tell you a microcosm of what I want to see happen in the world. So there's a, the Seasteading Institute started a yearly festival, kind of burning man on the water, where in order to go to this thing, you have to bring your own land and it's called ephemerile. It combines isle with ephemera. Uh -huh. So people put rafts together, they, they, they rent barges, they rent boats, and they have this little festival on the water where seasteading is People experiment with the principles of seasteading, right? It was started in like 2009, and it's happened once a year since. It's grown. People have participated in it. 
people have innovated. Check out pictures of ephemeral. It's actually become beautiful, especially when looked at from overhead. Mm -hmm. So it was started by seasteading ideologues, right? And I'm like Mr. Seasteader. So I went to ephemeral last year and I would walk around and meet people and, and people would say, well, oh, well, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm Joe Quirk, the seasteader. <laughs> and they'd say, seasteading, what's that? <laughs> You're doing it. And I'm like, you've never heard of seasteading? I bet you half the people I met had not heard of seasteading. Wow. So that's when you, I want to see that happen globally. So right now, it's like you and I, early adopters, people excited, pioneers willing to live a little uncomfortably at first because they want to do the next cool thing mm. because they're committed to the idea. Seasteading will be succeeding when people choose it because it's a better option, when they choose it because they get a better job there, because it's a better place to live, because yeah. they think it's nifty, because they have no idea about the philosophy behind it. It's simply a better option. Yeah. So, you know, a billion poor people start moving there because they get a better job there. When what's already happened on ephemeral in less than 10 years happens with seasteading, I'll retire. Now, where are you going with this, Joe Quirk? Where, when are you going to put your money where your mouth is, sell your house, buy your module, and hit the high water? I'll tell you what. If I was single, I'd go to Tahiti as soon as we get these things built. My wife uh, runs a business uh, in California and is currently uh, making our house beautiful and setting up our backyard. So she's very kind of grounded where she is. Yeah. And the only thing more important than seasteading to me is my wife. You're but a good I, man. I am, I'm going to be going back and forth, absolutely, because uh, I need to be a part of this. I so look forward to the – I love those little, you know, like with Ephemeral and Burning Man, those places that attract the early adopters, the fanatics, yeah. the yeah. people willing to make sacrifices to do it. That's always an exciting edge to be on. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to, you know, spending maybe half my year in French Polynesia once we get these going. Because, of course, French Polynesia sees itself as the blue frontier. And you say that you are going to draw a new world map with French Polynesia as the center of the aquatic age. Joe Quirk, it is an idea that puts a smile on my face. And it's one of these ideas, like I say, you stumble across from time to time and I think, yeah, this is going to work. I love it, Joe. Now, listen, I haven't, you're not off the hook yet. I, I want to hit you with four very quick final questions. Are you ready for them? I am. All right. Joe Quirk, what's the Saturday night you most look forward to? Big party, lots of people you know, or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Intimate dinner with my wife. Ah, see, that wasn't, wasn't one of the options, Joe. Intimate dinner with my closest friends. <laughs> I'm starting to crack down on my guests who start to give me a third answer. All right. What about this? Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Caught daydreaming. <laughs> I think I would have guessed that one. All right. What about the way you make decisions? Slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? Oh, such a powerful question. I don't accept the distinction. Mm -hmm. False dichotomy? Uh, it, yeah. As a matter of fact, there's interesting scientific experiments that show you can't make decisions without a sort of emotional time clock that says, okay, you got to make a decision now so that people that have brain damage that get this taken out they literally sit there and can't choose between a red and blue pencil for hours because they're weighing all the rational options. Okay. So what's your answer? <laughs> <laughs> so my answer is, I think I make intuitive decisions after using rationality as a tool. All right. My very last question. You're going on a road trip. 
Do you like to know exactly where you're going, book the hotel, plan the route, or do you just get in the car and drive? I've done both. Both have uh, resulted in wonders and disasters. I think the older I get, the more I want to know every detail before I go. So I think at this point, I'm get it all organized ahead of times. So there's fewer surprises. Joe Quirk, thank you for coming on the show. But most of all, thank you for sharing with us this fabulous idea that I hope one day I'm a part of. I absolutely love it. David, I look forward to uh, meeting you in Tahiti. And thanks for running a marvelous podcast. That was Joe Quirk, but more importantly, that was seasteading. Is that the future of humanity? As you could probably tell, I was just a tad excited about the whole concept. I'm bordering on selling up and moving the family to our very own portable module. I just have to tell my wife first. It's ideas like this and people like Joe that get me excited about the future. It's so easy, especially if you're like me and you keep a close eye on political shenanigans, to grow cynical and despondent about our future and the plight of humanity. But Joe reminds me of the incredible ingenuity of mankind. He reminds me that no matter how bleak our future looks, leaders amongst us will step up and shine a light on a new path. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Joe on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. I'll post some links to the Institute and to Joe's wonderful new book, Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. You'll find it all on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the principles and theory of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.